Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Hey, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. This time we have live space poetry, a song about photons and a spacewalk from hell with more from The Last Man on the Moon. You're handicapped pretty well when you're out there in a pressure suit that doesn't give you much mobility, traveling around the world at 18,000 miles. In this cocoon, in your, in your self-contained spacecraft, I call it the, the, the suit, and can't see, and all fogged up. Needless to say, that got my attention. Our guests are space scientist Lucy Green and poet Simon Barraclough. Now, Lucy studies the sun's atmosphere at the Mullard Space Science Laboratory in southern England, and Simon is spending a year at the lab as writer-in-residence. Why? Why? Simon? <laughs> It's one of the um, fabulous, interesting perks one can somehow wangle as a writer. And um, I'm currently writing a new book all about the sun called Sunspots. And um, I did an event with Marek Kukula back in 2012, I believe. Oh, he's the astronomer from the Royal Greenwich That's Observatory. That's right. He's, he's a public astronomer. And um, we were talking about my project. And I said, you know, Marek, I'd really like to talk to some actual solar physicists to help me write this book. And he suggested Lucy Green. And uh, I emailed Lucy and we spoke on the phone and um, we got on very well. And, and one thing led to another. And, and I'm I'm now at the lab on a fairly regular basis um, talking about poetry and introducing poetry to the, the staff and students there. What's it like, Lucy, to have a poet around the place? Well, I like to challenge what people would say is a conventional way of working in a laboratory. So for me... It's having a new perspective on something that we're all passionate about, and that's what Simon brings. And he makes us rethink what we're doing, why we're doing it, and he re-energises us too. Well, more on the project and a chance to hear the Photon song later on, which you will not get off your mind <laughs> no. for the next month. Uh, but Simon, uh, let's have a little poem from you to, uh, to set up our next item. Rosetta, unfettered go-getter, trendsetter, with one bumper sticker probes do it better <laughs> i love it and if there's one mission that is on every space boffin's mind at the moment yeah it is rosetta well in august after a 10-year journey the european space agency spacecraft finally caught up with its destination a comet a comet that looks like a duck albeit without feathers or, or wings but if you think bathroom toy duck made of ice and rock hurtling through space and you've got the picture well five possible landing sites have been selected for the fillet lander and the decision for a primary and a backup site will be made on september the 15th well i was at the european space operations center mission control in darmstadt germany last week and so met up with rosetta flight director andrea akamazzo and the first thing I wanted to know was whether that comet's unusual shape made it harder to prepare for a landing. 
Well, this shape has brought out uh, positive and negative parts. The very positive thing is that we do optical navigation in flying the spacecraft around it. So it's very, very easy, which is such a shape, to recognize features, so to know where features are in the pictures. This is very comfortable. For the lander itself, it's not particularly good because the trajectories are getting very complex. With this shape, we are a priori excluding some areas of the comet for for landing. So there are definitely positive and negative aspects. So for you then, what what is the challenge of trying to not only get Rosetta in the right position, but then get the lander in the right position so that it lands in the right place. Well, for me, there were two big challenges. And one we've sort of gone through for us to be able to deliver the lander. We have to be able to fly Rosetta around the comet. And what we did now in August was the fundamental, the crucial part. We had to retrieve some engineering models of the comet out of the images we were taking. And this we did within two or three weeks. We were able to design the next orbital phases, which is fundamental. Without this, we wouldn't be able to land. Now the technically difficult part comes where we have to fly much closer, much more accurately, close to the comet, and deliver the lander. This is still ahead of us. You're talking about speeds of tens of thousands of kilometers per hour in terms of it going through space but you're going to reduce that quite significantly to actually do the landing well rosetta and the comet are still flying at several tens of thousand kilometers per hour around the sun but when rosetta is flying around the comet with respect to the comet is flying a few tens of centimeters per second with our tools we are capable of measuring variation in the velocity of Rosetta of fractions of millimeters per second, even though the spacecraft is flying at few tens of thousand kilometers per hour. It's going to be very interesting when they announce the shortlisted sites. There are five that are there, but we're waiting to see which one will be the main one, the primary one, and then which will be the, the backup. Out of the sites that have been shortlisted, what did they have to have in common? Well, all the candidate landing sites had to respect a bare minimum list of, of, of uh, requirements uh, that to have uh, pretty good illumination conditions. The lander needs the sun to operate for longer term. They had to have a, an area which is relatively large with very smooth variations of the slope. Otherwise, the risk of landing and flipping over with the lander would be too, too significant. And third, they have to be reachable. They have to be in areas of the comet that we can reach with a descent trajectory. All of them have to have these characteristics. Now, when the shortlisted site has been chosen, the final of the shortlisted sites, which will probably be done about a week or so after our podcast goes goes out, what will you be doing as flight director between then and November? As soon as we have agreed on the prime and the backup landing site, then we have to start to prepare this operationally. This means in first instance, we have to design a trajectory of the spacecraft that will lead the spacecraft to be in condition to deliver the lander mid-November as planned. Second, we have to further analyze the landing, the descent conditions to confirm once more that the landing area is adequate for touchdown. And third, we have to prepare the detailed set of commands instruction for the spacecraft and the lander to execute this operation. So all our efforts will go into this task. And what will the activity of the comet be like at, in November? Because, you know, one of the reasons for doing this mission is to follow a comet as it gets closer to the, to the sun and then see what happens. 
Well, if I knew the answer to this question, <laughs> then uh, then we wouldn't be needed. Uh, unfortunately, the comet is very unpredictable. This we have already seen earlier this year when uh, it had an outburst of activity, and since then has been very very quiet. So we don't know exactly how it's going to behave in the next two months. But we, have, we are trying to also to create an engineering model of the activity of the comet itself. But here is much more difficult. All the others we have done are static. This one is very dynamic. And this is the nature of comets. And this is what poses us challenges. This for you must be, I'm assuming, a dream come true because, you know, it launched 10 years ago. This is a long time in the making. There are parts of this, our task that are taken very professionally. And it's my task to do these activities. But uh, emotions are triggered inside ourselves as well. I mean, I started working on this project in 1997. I've spent 18 years working, not full-time, but almost on this project. And now it's just a, a dream coming true. It's true. It's definitely it's the case. Rosetta Flight Director Andrea Akamatso. I he do does, like him. He does sound remarkably relaxed, doesn't he? Oh, I, I think he is the proverbial swan with their legs going like crazy. Uh, or, or a duck, maybe. Or a duck, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, Lucy, I mean, landing on a comet, doing what they're proposing to do, I mean, even getting to a comet, doing all this, it's remarkable, isn't it? It is, but that's the challenge of space science. If you want to get out there and really find out how our universe is working, you've okay, you can take images, but really you've got to get out there as well when you can. And I I, I feel his excitement. I really do. And I know the colleague my colleagues at, at UCL who are working on Rosetta as well are so excited about what they're going to see for the first time. We'll see this comet switching on as it gets close to the sun. Remarkable. I think the images that have been released so far, when I first saw them and, you know, just saw them online, I actually took a big sort of, <gasps> because it was like looking at detailed pictures of the moon. But we're talking about a comet that's millions and millions, much further away than the moon, in, out in deep space. And that, I think, is, is, is astonishing. Mm-hmm. And you have no reference frame for them, do you? You know, you can't compare them to anything else. So they look so stunning because they are so unique for us because this is really the first time we're getting this close-up view. Mm-hmm. They reminded me the way that you've got this small head on, and the big body, which, which almost looks like they're two different stones connected together with, with rubble. We were on holiday in the in the States recently and it reminded me of some of the rock formations you see in Monument Valley and Arizona and Utah. So you can sort of see how these things relate to the earth as well. That that for me was quite interesting. It doesn't feel as if it's out there in a vacuum that we're all it's all connected to what's gone on in the solar system and how we how it was formed. Yeah, I was comparing it to the images that came back from the Deep Impact mission. Do you remember that in 2004 or 2005? I've forgotten even the year now, where NASA had this audacious um, mission that they slammed a probe into the side of a comet. But I don't know, this one looks different. Different shape, bits stuck together, Mm -hmm. the craters look different on it. Yeah, each one's special. I guess they form in different environments, different distances, and the different gravitational pressures and maybe different types of minerals coming together so there's a uniqueness to all of them I guess but yeah this is what, a Kuiper belt one the, yeah. this, this one they reckon what I find fascinating about this is that you can you can you can follow Rosetta you can follow the probe on Twitter so these things they have <laughs> yes, their own little do. identity now that five years ago they never would have had so the, the, there's a new kind of intimacy as well that exists between absolutely the they've public been very these, good on their amazing, social media um, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we said that this captured the public's imagination, mm-hmm. which which it absolutely has. 
But comets have been capturing people's imaginations and writers and poets and artists mm. for, for, for centuries. Does, does a comet do for you what the sun is currently doing for you in the lab and writing poems? Well, for me, um, I mean, comets are important to my sun project because I, I, I've written a poem about them where you know, they're treated as kind of lovers that the sun has made eyes to across the universe and attracted them to their kind of fiery doom. So I've, I've added a kind of romantic um, twist to that. Well, so, sort of Medusa, Medusa exactly. of the solar system. So, I, mean, I mean, you know, my... my I have many feelings about the sun, but one is that you know it, it, it brings us life, but it's also trying to kill us at the same time. You know, it's this powerful force that we have to be very, very uh, respectful and wary of. But when I was a little boy, um, Turv Jansson's um, *Comet in Moominland*, which I think was the first Moomin book, um, had a massive effect on me. It, it uh, and I must have read it when I was about five or six or something. Terrifying, mysterious, beautiful, and of course they're, they're, in, they're all over Shakespeare, they're in Bayer tapestry. They they have changed history because people have changed policy when a, a, a comet has been you know sighted so they're extraordinarily symbolic you know um, objects and, and now we're seeing them up close and I wonder whether we're losing a bit of that kind of mystery well, or, I, I wondered yeah. about that does it take away some of that uh, mystery some of that uh, star over the, Bethlehem exactly type, Every, everything yeah, all the events that are associated well mm. 1066 mm-hmm. or, or all those events that are associated with comets and and uh, the mysticism. I mean, to a certain extent it does, but it gives us great richness in, in, in new knowledge and, and, and new things that can spark our imagination. So I, I think it, it it kind of balances out, I think, when you know when we lose the mystery of something we haven't understood for so long. Um, yes, people often decry that, but actually it opens up a whole new passage, I think, a whole new avenues for us to and get excited and imaginative about. Uh, Lucy, I wonder as well whether it's... You know, this is a remarkable mission to get to a comet. Even to rendezvous with a comet is remarkable. To attempt to land on a comet is even more remarkable. Uh, do you get to the stage where people are actually taking this stuff for granted, that we can do this thing and actually lose a sense of the wonder of the science as well? I think there is, or there can be, a sense that when you've seen something achieved for the first time, the second time you do it, the wonder goes. So, for example, I wonder about, at the moment, we always have a human presence in space. So launching astronauts now perhaps doesn't seem like such a remarkable thing to do whereas of course you know a few decades ago it was absolutely astonishing but if you work in science and technology that is that is getting us there you know what the challenges are and it is remarkable every single time that you make these successes each mission is bespoke mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a huge challenge to get out there when the comet starts heating up as it gets closer to the sun Will that for you be the most interesting part? Because while everyone's looking at the comet, you're probably thinking, oh, what, what's going on here that's making the sun do this? How is, is this working how it should be, etc.? I will be right, because comets have these beautiful tails, which are the product of emissions coming from the sun, the solar wind and, and the light coming from the sun. So they tell us about the sun. And in fact, uh, one of the PhD students who was working with us recently did a project where he was using cometary tails as a probe for the solar wind throughout the solar system. Fantastic project. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of another uh, comet, Comet Enki, who, who, sorry, I'm <laughs> personifying this <Yeah>. comet. <laughs> the comet lost its tail because of this gust of solar wind, perhaps even a coronal mass ejection, one of these eruptions mm. from the sun washed over the comet, and it broke away the comet's tail. So you're right, for someone like me, they are a probe for what the sun is doing, and that it gives us data we can't get in other ways. Did it grow back like a lizard? <laughs> I think it did, oh. actually. I didn't follow it afterwards, though. <laughs> so they're, oh, clearly they're reptilian in origin then, comets. <laughs> You look like you've got a poem pose there. I do, if you... Yeah. Yes, is come it, on, Simon. This is a poem from my... Uh, 
up on uh, upcoming book sunspots and it's uh, there's a sequence of poems about the sun talking about lying about which of which of uh, the painters are its favorite so this poems about turner and, and this one is about van gogh who of course painted amazing um, depictions of the sun at a push i'd have to say that vincent was my fave despite his weakness for starry nights those mirrors of wheat the gnawing gristle of existential well you know what i mean that soggy stuff in the middle of you people Remember my tussle with the wind to get the traveller to remove his coat and the wind smote and stupidly smote and I wooed with waves of woozy heat. Well, it was just the same with Vince. Remove the vestiges, hack through sinew, scimitar the ear, a cinch, then send the iron through the heart, inch by superheated inch. I like that one. That's great. I like the soggy stuff in the centre of people. That's wonderful. (laughs) This is a Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can find Space Boffins on Facebook, Twitter and at spaceboffins.com, which I know, we've said this before, we will update. Um, We're not saying when, but we will. (laughs) You can also read Richard's column on space developments at bbc.com slash future and that is updated every couple of weeks now there are songs about love there are songs about loss and even songs about the relative merits of being a boy named sue but there aren't perhaps enough songs about photons Simon, obviously a song about photons. This is your song about photons. This is you singing on that song about photons. It's the catchiest song ever. (laughs) We've listened to it so many times. I love the 80s influence. Um, What is it about specifically uh, and how did it come about? It's about photons. Well, obviously it's about, look, specifically. Well, it's difficult to say what a poem or a song is about. It's often more than one thing. And this, I guess, it's uh, the mind-blowing knowledge um, I learned a few years ago when I realised that... um, you know, photons are formed in the core of the sun through nuclear fusion, and then it can often take you know millions of years for them to reach the surface and then get to us. Of course, once once they're travelling at the speed of light, it's only eight minutes across. And I know that photons get reabsorbed and re-emitted, etc., etc. So there's not this isn't this is about a single photon and its massive journey. It's also a love song, of course. So it's about the impatience of not being able to wait eight minutes more. Um, so it's a kind of it's 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 a combination of of science and and, and romance and 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 a love story and, um, and particle physics and yeah and. Part- Particle physics, um, all the things I like. I like to combine in poetry and and songs. Where does the love of the physics and the sun and astronomy? Where does that come from? Well, I think as it does for most people, just through a love of a love of the imagery. When you when you're when you're a small boy or girl, I used to hang out in the school library just just looking through you know Carl Sagan's books and big you know photographic books about you know nebulae and and, and galaxies etc. And it's so exquisitely beautiful. Also, I grew up in Huddersfield. Um, in front our house is in front of um, a very large recreational area which was unlit. And I used to be I used to go out and lie on my back at night and look up and see oh, hundreds of thousands of stars, which in London you see about eight, you know, if you're lucky at the moment. So that kind of, um, 
I had a great love for that. I had no way of knowing that, that you can actually train to become an astronomer or a physicist. I was, I was in love with, with literature and the humanities, and I went into um, to study English at university, etc., etc. And I've kind of come full circle in a way. I'm able to work with, with Lucy and her colleagues and write poems that have both my love of literature and my love of science kind of combined. So I'm, it, I'm enjoying exploring that at the moment. It is wrong to separate the two, isn't it? Because there's a massive crossover, Lucy, isn't there, between art and science. And I think you found that with this, this project mm. that you've actually found a lot of budding artists a lot of budding poets mm. at the Mullard Space Science Laboratory. Well that's right and I don't see why we should have to separate ourselves out to be either an artist or a scientist. Why can we not appreciate all these factors and there's absolutely no reason why we should be pigeonholed to be either an artist or a scientist both are about exploring and being creative, both are about having questions about the universe and I think one of the reasons, well maybe the main reason why it's so important to have Simon in the scientific laboratory is to remind us of that why can we not be people who appreciate all these different factors and you know we're coming at we're looking at the same thing but we're coming from different angles and I think they are very complementary and and have you found budding poets musicians artists who are also scientists in doing this project we have it's been astonishing actually I I didn't quite appreciate how successful that aspect was going to be I mean there were there were lots of motivations for having Simon in but we have found some real gems um scientists who are so creative in in poetry and in literature and in fact I've learned more about their science through listening to the poems that they write which is a really interesting take so you Simon you've yep. you've encouraged people to write poems then is that right absolutely yeah, scientists yeah. And, um, poems. they write them individually we're doing a collaborative piece which we're going to perform inside a small observatory that's actually on the, on the site of, of, uh, of the space laboratory which has incredible acoustics it's like a mini whispering gallery um, so we're going to we're writing a piece between us about about 10 of us and we're going to perform it in there with people listening and the voices are going to bounce around and the poem is about domes and observatories and echoes and refrains and things so so I'm, I'm trying to use use people's skills and use use the science as creatively as possible but I mean I went in here uh, feeling exactly the same with, uh, as Lucid is that there's no separation as far as I'm concerned um, I didn't see myself as a creative person going into a non-creative place I knew it was a very creative place and I knew we'd get amazing results if we just if we just tried and um, and, and I'm I'm just loving being there and some amazing work coming out sometimes prompted by me sometimes totally unprompted um, people are doing things on their own initiative that I may have set them later as an interesting exercise, but they just r- run with them themselves. You know, I find it uh, incredibly surprising, rewarding, fun, challenging, sometimes a little bit, you know, intimidating for me. And I know some people initially were intimidated by having um, a poet in there thinking maybe that this is going to be like an English class. I'm going to ask them to explain and analyse poems, which isn't, isn't the case at all. I mean, if people aren't being creative and having fun, then there's no point in me being there, really. And that works for me as much as anyone else. It must be so great to be in your lab doing your space science stuff and then suddenly have a little, uh, you know, aside with a with the poet in residence. People and have then, said they like the little break from what they're yeah. doing. And, and our, looking at I know, Edwin Morgan or Rebecca Elson, who was, who, was, who was an astronomer, who was a poet. I mean, right there you've got the two things combined. Uh, Miroslav Holub is a, is a scientist and a, and a poet. Um, uh, yeah, and... Um, yeah, and they like to have a little little break from what they're doing, and I don't know, but um, Lucy knows more of that side uh, than I do. I wondered how it would go because obviously it can be, like Simon says, that you don't necessarily understand why you might have a poet in residence. And we had an artist in residence before, and people took a while to come around to seeing the benefits of it. But I think this time the fit has been much better. 
I have to bring my clarinet into Space Puffins. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, back now to what's probably been our most popular podcast of the year so far. Last month's interview with the last man on the moon, Gene Cernan. Well, there is more. I also talked to him about his first mission when he flew with Tom Stafford in Gemini 9 in 1966. Now, the mission was beset with problems and things didn't get any better once Cernan had left the capsule on America's second spacewalk, or EVA. The spacewalk was aimed at testing out a rocket-powered astronaut manoeuvring unit known as an AMU. But Cernan was experiencing problems. In fact, he later described it as the spacewalk from hell. This is Gemini Control, Houston. Tom Stafford reports that uh, Cernan is encountering some fogging up of the visor. They are keeping the high rate O2 flowing in order to reduce this fogging. They report they're having a little more difficulty than expected in deploying the attitude control arms on the EMU. Uh, Cernan's words were they didn't work out, they're not working out just as they did in the simulations. We ran into a bundle of surprises on Gemini 9 that we should have thought about. Obviously, uh, the biggest one was... uh, the laws of Mr. Newton, which somehow some of the most highly qualified engineers in the world, I guess you could include me myself because I was a subject, never gave them a second thought. We're going to go up in zero gravity, we're going to turn valves, we're going to push levers, we're going to, every action is a composite reaction. You know, we had had a grand total of 20 minutes of spaceflight experience walking in space. Leonov, a good friend of mine, a Russian, you know, he was out 10 minutes and took him three minutes to get out and seven minutes fighting for his life to get back in. Ed White had a wonderful 20-minute experience, but he was just out there to see what it was like. And I was the first one to be challenged with being out there day and night, going around the world a couple times, uh, close to a three-hour EVA, and even more important than that, fly what I like to describe as a Buck Rogers backpack, literally get off the spacecraft oxygen and get on the backpack self-contained oxygen and radio system to be literally a flying satellite divorced from any spacecraft support. And I did get there. I got that far. The only thing I didn't do was get cut loose to fly in that 125-foot tether. But by that point, you couldn't see. This rocket pack I was going to fly was uh, outside the spacecraft. It was folded up, tucked back in among what we call the adapter section. And I had to extend arm lengths, control arm lengths. I had to turn on oxygen valves. I had to turn on fuel valves. And by the way, you know, today's world, when you see someone on a backpack flying around, they're using nitrogen and inert gas. I had hydrogen peroxide. It was a real rocket and a side note is when they designed these things, they had these little rocket quadrants on the top and bottom, and they had one of these rockets coming right up between my legs, which we redesigned that pretty quickly. But if you notice, if you see any pictures, I'm the only one that's ever had to wear woven chromel iron pants on top of my regular spacesuit, which almost doubled the mobility problem. And the reason I had to do it, it was a rocket engine. They didn't want me to burn a hole through my suit. That should have raised some questions to start with. But I had to work so hard to maintain my position. I had no 
no f- footholds. I had a handlebar to stand on. Think about that. A handlebar to stand on in zero gravity. There's no down in zero gravity. I had no tethers to hold me in position, so when I'd have to twist one of these valves, the valve would twist me back. And I could twist it only so far, and then I'd be floating back out in space, and I'd work myself back in. Even the connectors, when I had to disconnect from the umbilical, the oxygen, you need two hands. And I had to connect back onto the backpack. You need the purchase of two hands. I equate it to taking a champagne bottle and trying to take the cork out of a champagne bottle uh, you know, with one hand or opening a Coca-Cola with one hand. You can't do it. And that's was me. And my heart rate got up and I overpowered the environmental control system. All we had was oxygen at that time for cooling. A lot came from the flight as a result of that. I did indeed fog up. It got cold at night. You know, it's like a cold winter day. I grew up in Chicago where the wind, you get in an automobile and the windshield immediately fogs up and I scrape a little hole where I can see down and I could see the, the lights. I knew it was Australia, but I didn't know where. Passed by beneath me and uh, you're handicapped pretty well when you're out there in a pressure suit that doesn't give you much mobility, traveling around the world at 18,000 miles. In this cocoon, in your in your self-contained spacecraft, I call this this the suit, and can't see, and all fogged up. Needless to say, that got my attention. It seems extraordinary, though, that that spacewalk, where everything seemed to be going wrong, in fact, other parts of that mission weren't working as they were meant to work, and yet three years later, almost to the day, you are around the moon, very close to the lunar surface. Mm-hmm. The amount of things that had to be learnt in that time and the amount of mistakes that had to be made, lives were lost. I mean, it just seems extraordinary we, that so we, much was done so quickly. Every flight was a new endeavour. You're only as smart as you are at that moment. I thought Gemini 9 was a failure. We came back, and it turns out we learned a great deal that allowed us to proceed forward and eventually be very successful in our EVAs on a lunar surface. But every flight we learned something. Every flight was a challenge. We ran into a lot of unknowns. We found more questions than we did answers. But think about these things. It was 1961 that Kennedy challenged us to go to the moon. And he said, we're going to do it in a decade. The first thing is, we only had 16 minutes of space flight experience. Alan Shepard went up and came down. We didn't know beans about going to the moon. We had to develop all those technology, that technology. We had to answer all those questions of which, uh, you know, we you know, only didn't have answers for. We didn't even know what the questions were. We did it in that decade, number one. He was asking us to do what most people thought couldn't be done, what was impossible. But we did it. Gene Cernan talking about his Gemini 9 spacewalk and his chainmail pants. Uh, my full interview with the last man on the moon and his lunar mission. He flew uh, Apollo 10 and Apollo 17. And the future of the space program, it's on the Naked Scientist Space Boffins page. And I should warn you, if you haven't heard it, he is angry. He is angry about the state of the space program. Just listening to that. Uh, Lucy and Simon. It proves once again, doesn't it, how hard this stuff is. Mm. That was 1966. <clears throat> 1969, they're walking on the moon. 
I know it's incredible the technology that they had to develop and and the attitude that you have to get that done as well I mean the bravery going up listening to him I was astounded who's going to fly up in a spacecraft to put on a backpack with a with a rocket between your legs <laughs> I mean you've got to be you've really got to have the right stuff to work but you you wouldn't have after that would you he did have, he did have iron pants though yeah I mean, yes come on yeah, he, he's, he's great. He's isn't a natural he? deadpan comedian, I think, as well. I haven't heard the angry se- sections yet. I'd like to hear that. But yeah, well, you a, need to listen to the, the August podcast. Yeah. There's a certain extraordinary modesty that comes from incredibly courageous acts, I think, which is always very impressive. We take it for granted, but actually, doing EVAs is difficult. It's hard. It still takes hours and hours and hours. And you hear from astronauts that have done it that they are physically and emotionally exhausted mm. at, at the end of it. And, and I just thought, wow, really, not that much has changed. He might be wearing a more comfortable outfit, but mm-hmm. actually not that much has changed. Well, I mean, this story with Gemini is interesting. I mean, it's interesting what happened, but they were lulled rather into a false sense of security. So you had the first spacewalk, which was Alexei Leonov, uh, Soviet Union, and all the propaganda suggested that was a big success. Actually, it was a near disaster. He almost died trying to get back into the, into the spacecraft. And then the uh, American spacewalk with uh, Ed White, Again, it looked like he was having loads of fun. He had this little jet pack and it was all a little sort of handheld jet device. It was all all great. And they thought it was a lot easier than it turned out to be. Cernan proved them wrong with that mission. Thank you very much to our studio guests, space scientist Lucy Green from University College London's Mullard Space Science Laboratory and the lab's writer-in-residence, Simon Barraclough. Simon, have you got one more poem for us before we finish? Could it have known as the disc accrued as gravity drew all things to itself, as protoplanets formed in its skirts came spinning like googlies from the back of the maker's hand, that it would have to oversee all this, the billion years of agony and bliss, the sun-kissed, fly-blown wounds of everything that exists. The Space Boffins podcast is supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and ABSL Space Products. I'm Sue Nelson. And I'm Richard Hollingham. We are produced in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do keep in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And we'll leave you with some more of the Photon song from Simon's Sunspot Project. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.